0: Welcome to Crossroads, everybody, my name is Dan. Um, I'd like to invite you to turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 15, if you have one, uh, or however you do that. Derek, I see you pulling your phone out, perfect. Romans chapter 15, and as a community, this summer we've been trying to break up each week into practical ways to grow in our discipleship with Jesus. Um, We just sort of recognize that, you know, Christian faith lived out in our lives is like a garden. If you're not tending to the garden or pulling out weeds, things are gonna grow that were never intended to be there. And over time, your your faith, your life as a Christian is gonna look a lot different than you ever intended it to be and so or, or, or intended it to look. And so you just wanna find ways each week to look at practical ways that we can start taking steps of faith um, wherever we're at. Whether you're six, you've been a Christian for six minutes or for 60 years, the cool thing about discipleship is you don't graduate from it. It's something we're always trying to evaluate and and grow in and learn from Jesus so that we can look like him in this world. We've been given such a cool opportunity to represent Jesus in our world. And all the way back to week one, you might remember, uh, maybe not actually, back in June, uh, a line was said we're going to be formed by something. We're image-bearing people. We're, we're, we're people that, are, that reflect what we worship, reflect the God that we have. And so we have to track down idols that are in our life and patterns that are not lining up with who Jesus is and who our God is in order to continue to reflect who Jesus is to, to our world. That's the ministry that has been uh, given to all of us as we represent Christ as his disciples. And so I'd like to take this summer and just time to just pause and just say, hey, what are some practices that I can grow in as a disciple of Jesus? And as Jesus always does, is looks at all of us and says, come follow me. I wanna welcome you into this. You are invited to be like Jesus in this world. This month, we've been looking at practices that generally... uh, are oriented towards people around us. So the first week we're talking about confessing and talking about our flaws to one another, throwing ourselves at each other's feet for forgiveness and reconciliation, uh, the, the importance of service, and how uh, to represent Christ in this world, we bend a knee and serve one another. I'd read the parable of the Good Samaritan. And this week, I get to talk about one of the richest and long-standing, beautiful traditions in Christianity: hospitality. And I know right out of the gates, when I say the word hospitality, this could mean different things for different people. For some, it's very narrow, and it's just you know a meal in your home. But for others, this might be your college major, right? Like, it's a, a broad category. So I like to throw out some um, definitions and things that I find helpful right, right from the beginning. Hospitality comes from the Greek word philozenos, which you probably already knew good fun facts there, but you can see the two words that are put together in this one word, philo, like Philadelphia. This is the word for brotherly love. Like, um, the, like I like to call the ride or die love, the love of a sibling and a family, something that you can't break, a loyalty, a fidelity. Xenos, like Xenon, the war, or Xena is it a warrior princess. I'm pretty sure this is, it's probably a similar root. Okay. Uh, how about this one? Xenophobia, right? This is a word we use for the fear of the outsider. That's what Xenos is the outsider. So put those two things together a familial, ride or die, welcoming love for the outsider, the stranger, hospitality. Um, Greg Dempster wants told me a practical definition of hospitality that I'll never forget, which is if you wanna grow in hospitality, it's to anticipate the needs of other people and fill them as as best as you can. We have to start looking at other people and trying to think, what do they need? Not just about me, how can I serve this other person? That's what a hospitable heart starts to look like. Uh, One of my favorite books on hospitality is The Gospel Comes with a House Key. Has anybody read this by Rosaria Butterfield? My house didn't even come with a house key. So this one's the gospel comes with a house key. It's pretty cool. Okay, so one of the things that she says when she defines hospitality, she says this, it is making strangers into neighbors and making neighbors into family. If you wanted a practical definition, anticipate needs. But if you want the goal for hospitality in the kingdom of heaven, it's to make strangers into neighbors and make neighbors into family. That's where we're headed with hospitality. Some of the questions that I've been wrestling through this week about hospitality would be questions like this. Can you grow as a Christian and not grow in hospitality? It's an interesting tangent. I was looking at words, you know, verses in the New Testament with hospitality in them. And in two places where there's requirements for an elder in the church, it says, must be hospitable. Have you ever thought about that? As the, mature, the ones who are maturing in the church, this is a, an expectation for them, must be hospitable. Now, the question I'm wrestling through is, what's the difference between hospitality as a Christian or hospitality like just as a person in the world? Or a better, or better yet, what about a Christian showing hospitality reflects the heart of God and the gospel? Is there a way that we can be hospitable and open our hearts to the, to the love of the stranger and actually reflect the truth of the gospel in how we do that. So these are some things that I'm wrestling through and I wanna invite you into. As you turn to Romans chapter 15, which has a special place in my heart because one of these verses was read from Romans 15, at my wedding. I'll never forget that. We just celebrated our 10th anniversary, but it just feels like it was yesterday. We had uh, the 10, the 10 anniversary. We had a group of people pray over us, and my grandpa, he prayed a verse from Romans 15 to kind of end it, and it was a really beautiful time. So I wanna invite you into this chapter right where I'm at. So please, if you could stand, stand with me for the reading of God's word, Romans chapter 15. Romans 15 and verse 1 We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbor for their good, to build them up. For even Christ didn't please himself, for as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen upon me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures, and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. So may the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice, you might glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Welcome one another as Christ welcomed you in order to bring praise to God, amen. Welcome one another. The word welcome here in, in Greek in verse 7 has the connotation or the picture of taking the hand of a companion. There's three things that I kind of want to explore about hospitality with you today. And number one, it's it flows from your story of redemption. Hospitality flows out of your, your own story and the story of our heritage as Christians. Number two, it creates space for you to experience Jesus in a unique way. It creates space for you to experience Jesus in a unique way. And number three, it displays the gospel to the rulers and authorities and everybody that's around us. Okay, so hospitality is a big deal. Romans chapter 15. If you're unfamiliar with Romans, when I start to think about Romans, I always like to think about the face of Romans. The face of Romans is a woman named Phoebe she worked alongside of Paul and Paul commissioned her to bring the letter of Romans to the Roman house churches. From everything that I know about being a letter carrier in that day, this would include being a part of the process of like crafting this letter and and, and teaching it and reiterating it and being given permission to answer questions and emphasize certain things as the community is hearing this letter uh, being circulated in the house church network of Rome. So Phoebe walks into maybe one of the most awkward meals of her life. Why is it so awkward? Well, let me tell you a little bit about what's going on in the Roman house church. They've been divided and will no longer participate in table fellowship with one another. What happened was a big traumatic season came upon the people who grew up Jewish in the Christian in the Christian church, Jews in general, they were all kicked out of Rome for like eight years, okay? And I don't know, take it or leave it, but this would cause me some feelings of like very deep instability and, and, and destabilized stuff causes us to all to start focusing on things that like we know is, is safe and normal and double down on our family values. And so they started to go back to the kosher laws. And kosher laws have to do with how we eat, who we eat with, and what we eat with. And it's like a really big deal to, um, it's not just a personal thing. It's it's also a part of who you're eating with. It, it affects that relationship. But on the other side of the fence of the room here, you have the people who grew up Gentile, they've been a part of this church the whole time. They saw the moratorium happen, whatever. They've been welcoming people in for the last eight or nine years and their focus is hospitality. What do you do when you're trying to welcome people in? Because you know Jesus is like the guy who touches lepers and eats with sinners and tax collectors and goes to houses of of Roman soldiers and does things you're not allowed to do when you're uh, living a kosher life per se. They're in tension and it's getting awkward. We know a little bit about awkward meals, at least I do. If so you invite me out to dinner and then give me the chance to pick the restaurant, and I pick a classy pizza restaurant like the Mitten, and then we sit down and you say, Oh, I'm on a whole 30. Or I decided to take a a diet so that I can't eat meat or cheese or sugar or bread or flour. And now I have to sit here and put vegetables on my pizza or whatever to make it look healthy. Because there's nothing more disgusting than eating junk food in front of someone trying to be healthy. (laughs) We need to realize, though, that this is not just a letter written towards an awkward dinner. This is a letter written towards deep-rooted convictions the people who are trying to eat kosher are dealing about w- with sin. It's holiness, okay? So on the one side, they're looking at holy life. Like how does, what offends God and what pleases God? The other side is hospitality. What do you do when hospitality and holiness are in contrast? They're both values here. So I mentioned before, they would, not, they would not participate in table fellowship, but table fellowship is a technical term that you can look up and learn about, which means um, in their time, it's kind of implicit in our time, but in their time, it was much more of an explicit practice saying, who I eat with is who I validate. Who I eat with is who I'm doing life with. I love this person, I, we are in this together. And if you have some, in, in their world, luckily this isn't a problem for us, but if you have a person with some major ethical or philosophical differences than you, you would not be able to eat with them. I was being sarcastic, okay. um, We'll dig into more of this as we go. So Phoebe has this letter and she gives them this message, chapter 15 and verse seven, welcome one another as Christ welcomed you. This is your message. Now, what do you do with that? What I start to see here developing in verse seven is a pattern of what, what, what looks like hospitality that flows from their story. Base your hospitality on the fact that you once were out and now you're in. Welcome as Christ welcomed you. This is the last time that you really thought about that and, and, and refreshed the reality that there was a time where each of us were not in we're not in and good with God or we're not feeling like we were in God's family or or, or that we were able to be at that table. And there's a moment, maybe there was a time where you were reading the Bible or praying or listening to something or walking and and God just flooded you with like that confirmation. You are in my family. You belong here. You are a part of this. I made it so that you could be here. Now I know for me, when I moved to Grand Rapids, it was a, a long road before I really felt like I be fully integrated or like was in. And if I forget that, I'm much more likely to just do my own thing and be somebody that's, you know, I've got my friends or whatever. But if I remember that, a hospitality flows from that story so easily where I start to see people who are new and start to think, man, I really have a soft spot uh, for somebody who's new to this town. How can I help you know where all the the good places to eat are? Or how can I connect you with friends or people that you could come around you? That's what this, this pattern and format of empathy flowing into hospitality looks like. Paul says in verse four, that the stories that have been written in scripture are there to encourage you and to give you endurance that leads to hope. In this regard, the scripture has a big story that we're invited into, that we also get to take forwards in our own life. What is the story of the Bible telling us and how does that work? Well, this kind of thought came to my mind this week and it's something I'm trying to say in a clearer way, but um, might not come across very clear. If your encouragement and your endurance and your hope is set on, on things I don't know. I think it's just tempting for us to set our our expectations and our encouragement into a future society or a future way of uh, of how things can look. And and that's what we put our hope in. If you are in that place or if, if you see a pattern where you're looking for the future of not just a utopia, but just like a more Global, national, bigger picture of something that represents God, it can get really sketchy really fast. Let me try and, and, and process this a little bit more. I never see a story in the Old Testament where everybody was doing the right thing. It's just not a biblical expectation that you could kind of point to. A lot of times it's actually the opposite. Everybody was doing the wrong thing under every spreading tree or or on every high place there was or or whatever. And, And everybody was going in that direction. Now, if I, in modern times, look towards the future and think, okay, I'm gonna listen to the marketing that's out there right now, which is this is how you have an impact in the world and have an influence and become somebody that everybody's listening to or following or, or this is how you can make the most out of your uh, contribution to our society right now and start to think, okay, maybe there's a way for the, to get the big group to become Christian or act Christian or do this or that. The expectation that probably should be there is that maybe everybody will do the wrong thing. Maybe that's the way that things are in a sense. But the story that should give us encouragement isn't a story where everybody turns towards God and does the right thing or where everybody gets coerced to do the right thing. The story that gives us encouragement is actually of people who on an individual level decided to do the right thing. So if all of the nation decided to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar, there's three guys who said, I'm not gonna do it. I mean, think of the stories that are written in the Old Testament to encourage us and to produce endurance. They're telling you, Hey, there's a bunch of stories here of people who are like, I don't know what the rest of the city's gonna do. I don't know what they're thinking, but I know that God has me in this situation for a reason. Me, one person, I'm just gonna do what I can. I'm not gonna let what I can't do stop me from what I can do. I'm gonna trust God with the big picture of what's going on out there, and I'm gonna deal with what's at my table tonight and who's invited into my house. And you get pictures like Rahab, In Jericho, no reason why she should uh, do an act of treasonous hospitality for these two spies. But she saw something behind them in their God that she was interested in and welcomed them in and helped them even though it could have cost her her life. Um, Her son, Boaz, though everybody in the country was doing what was right in their own eyes, he decided, just as for me, I'm going to leave the corners of my field uncut and make a space for people like refugees or, or immigrants like Ruth from Moab to be able to have something uh, from my fields. Uh, you have stories all throughout the Old Testament of one person saying, I don't know whatever's going to happen out there, but I am going to do the right thing. Crossroads. The kingdom of heaven isn't gonna be something that you see on the screen somewhere. It is something that is within you and it is inside of your home and it is inside of, it drives in your car and it is a part of your family and gets to develop so that your neighbors can see you and say, that house is a city set on a hill. And the light of the world inside of this dark context that we live in will start to shine through you making a safe place and a refuge for the people that are around you. Boaz isn't alive anymore, but you are. It's your turn to bring the story and our heritage forwards into this world. And from your story of being welcomed into that, welcome in other people, especially the ones who are different and maybe don't belong because we have a love for the outsider, for the stranger. Hospitality can flow from your story but also can be a space conducive to know Jesus in a unique way. Why do I say that? Jesus actually tells a parable about himself. And this parable has messed with people for a really long time. Matthew 25, Jesus talks about, when the Son of Man comes with all the angels in glory, he will divide the nations up um, like a king, like a shepherd. And he talks about sheep and goats. Does anybody know this parable? He says, the difference between the sheep and the goats, there's going to be a person, you know, he looks at the sheep and he says, because when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. Thirsty, you gave me something to drink. In prison or didn't have clothes, you met me where I was at. And then he says to the other side of the people, when I was thirsty, you did not give me something to drink and so on and so forth. Both groups in the parable are confused. Their thinking is not lining up with what he's talking about. What are you talking about? When we saw you, we didn't see you. That reveals what they're thinking is this. Of course, if I would have seen the king, I would give him what I had because he's the king. But Jesus responds to them and says, when you did it to the least of these, you did it to me completely shifting the paradigm of why and and what happens when we give to people who do not have or who aren't as as well off as us. He puts dignity into a space where there wasn't dignity before. He says, that is actually me. No longer are you gonna be able to look at the world and see people who are lesser than you and give to them from a condescending position. Actually, you are getting from them an interaction with me. And now be, making space And in this interaction becomes so important that, I don't know if you know this parable, but it doesn't end well for the goats. It's that important to Jesus that this, uh, that, that we cultivate this space between one another in this way that he identifies with the one who does not have and brings them to a place of such dignity that it messed with people and it continues to mess with people 2,000 years later. Has anybody read the book Making Room by Christine Pohl? It was all the rage a few years ago. I don't remember where I was or who gave me this book, sorry. Sorry. Shouldn't have said that out loud. Thank you for whoever gave me this book. (laughs) And uh, man, (laughs) Uh, there's a whole section in this book that outlines kind of the history of uh, how Christian hospitality has developed over the last 2,000 years. But one thread, no matter if you look at the first 500 or the second 1,000, that Middle Ages period or post-Reformation, one thread that kind of goes through it all is some sort of wrestling match with Matthew 25. It's inspired people so much to bring dignity to people who don't have dignity in this world that it inspired the early church to start adopting people who were left on the side of the road, children who were left on the side of the road of the Roman Empire and to create orphanage and orphanages. It inspired men and women to create these weird outpost villages called monasteries to welcome in pilgrims to start to produce in them some sort of health wherever they are on their journey physically and spiritually. And just to experience hospitality, it started, this is where hospitals started, hospice care started, social work in general was all started from this perspective of Jesus saying, when you've done it to the least of these, you have done it to me. And welcoming in people to start to interact with him in a special and a unique way. This is the the trajectory that our forefathers have been on as a people who wanna bring dignity to the stranger, the outsider, the other, the person who's different. You can experience Jesus in this way. Whether it be just inviting somebody into your home this week to just do life with you and have a meal, or whether it be participating in a large institution like how many medical workers and hospital employees are here and a part of this community? What Christine Pohl says is the like the sweet spot is that we do both. There's been times over history where people are just emphasizing on their own individual practice and times where we just emphasize the institution, which is probably in my armchair expert kind of like summary where we're at. I mean, I feel like a lot of people just say like, just drop them off or, or whatever at, at, the, uh, at the institution or, or whatever that, that uh, nonprofit might be. But our homes are like a little more private these days. Um, and so there's got to be a way where we can actually start to evaluate that and figure out how do I make sure that on, a, on an individual level, I am participating in stepping over boundaries and stepping through line, uh, stepping across lines of society and showing that I want to interact with the one who is thirsty and the one who is hungry um, to meet Jesus, maybe for the first time in a long time, but also to continue to look at the expertise and the resources that come along with uh, big nonprofit or institutional organizational work. And so uh, just evaluate that in your own heart, in your own life, and see kind of where you're at with that. But either way, you are been given opportunity to do to Jesus what you've done to the least of these and to meet Jesus in this way. The last thing I wanna bring up here is, um, so what I've said previously here is that you have been given hospitality opportunity through your story, your own testimony, also an experience Jesus in a unique way, but also to put the gospel on display. What do I mean by that? Well, here's what I wanna say. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. You're familiar with this verse? Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities and principalities in heavenly realms. That's real. Jesus talks of this character, the ruler of this present evil age. And this group of antagonistic characters hate us and want to divide us and want to create lies between us and build up walls that we then have to figure out, are they real or not, or how do I figure this out? They do this in so many different ways, whispering lies about our social status or our race or about even sports teams. This is how this, you know, look at, the hatred that happens between people in, in other sports teams or if one person believes in merging through the zipper method <laughs> or, or not, you know, it's all of a sudden we have an enemy. We have somebody that's threatening us and we, we, we start to listen to uh, this, this uh, way of thinking uh, that I think is coming down through the rules and authorities. What is gonna form you? What is gonna inform your lifestyle? And and is it one that is saying, yes, everybody around you is a threat, or is it one that is saying, I have brought down the threat between you two, and I have made a way where there was no way? I'd like to read you a verse from Ephesians chapter two that I really like on this. But now, in Christ Jesus, you, crossroads, who once were far away, have been brought near by the blood of Christ, For he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body, reconciled the both of them, not just one of them, not the individual, the both of them have been reconciled to God through the cross. By which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away, and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but citizens with God's people and members of his household. Jesus knows the value of hospitality. And he knows the value of what's gonna happen when we start to gather in his name. And and what happens is he brings a group of people together that should never have been brought together. If you ask the rulers and authorities and principalities, they're gonna draw all kinds of lines and say, you don't belong here, you don't belong here, you're not safe here, Get out. circle up in your own group and get out of town. But what Jesus does when he is invited to a meal is he brings us together somehow. It shouldn't work, but it does work. And Jesus wanted to do this so badly, he put himself into the meal. Why we as Christians don't invite Jesus into the meal more, I do not know. But maybe think of that verse in Revelation chapter three where Jesus says, I'm still gonna knock. I'm knocking at the door. Let me come in so that I can eat with you. I wanna be at your table. Because when you invite Jesus to your table, he's gonna start to put on display this diverse and beautiful family that belongs at the same table together. Break the bread, pass the wine, and remember what Jesus has done through the cross, that he has broken down the wall of hostility that's been built up between us and put this family on display through hospitality. I'd like to invite the band back up and close with this fictional story that I read in the appendix of a book recently. Why am I looking in the appendix of a book? I don't know. (laughs) Bored. (laughs) I'll give it to you if you like it. It's a short story about Phoebe in Rome. And, and, it, and it kind of explores all the different uh, potential conversations that she had and li- like, you know, incorporates in a really artistic way all the names from Romans 16. And my favorite part of this short story is that Phoebe meets this slave girl named Sabine. And Sabine says to her, Phoebe, I, I, just, I feel like I have the gift of leadership. Is there any way that I could be like you? And she says to Sabine, Don't view yourself through the eyes of the world that just tells you you're just a slave and a a kitchen servant. Um, God sees you as a daughter who's welcomed, a part of his family and a part of his ministry. Keep going. And that night at dinner where they're gathered around, the bread and the wine, Phoebe gives Sabine the bread. And she says, it's your turn. And she breaks the bread and she goes around and she hands it to everybody in the room, including her master, And says, the body of Christ was broken for you. And what I love about this story is it just explores the possibility of what our world could look like if we would invite Jesus back into the meal and to see and to experience what there is neither slave nor free, Jew nor Greek, male nor female, like we are all in one family in Christ Jesus. You are welcomed into this. And I know that we have a world that is hungry for the Prince of Peace and hungry for the family that he provides. So let's invite him to the meal. Let's pray. Father in heaven, if there's any of us, it's just it's been a while since we revisited our story Bring us back to that place where we just we become humble again and excited that you welcomed us into your family and there's no way that that should make sense. And from that place, inspire us to welcome other people in and just try, try to communicate what we see is possible for even us. If there's any of us who just feel like we need to meet you again, then just put yourself in our way this week Thirsty, hungry, send us to the jail to meet with you and to experience you in a new way. And if there's any of us who just feel like we're giving in to the hostility and the divisions of this world, help us to see that you have brought that hostility down. You've answered the threats. You've given us new mindsets, which are ours for the taking. Help us to live out that as the best we can. And and I know that you have a soft spot for people who pick up their cross and follow you. And I know that you have resurrection power ready to pour out into the lives of people who die on crosses for your sake and for the sake of your kingdom in this world. Amen. Amen.